Okay, then you're gonna do what I tell you, huh? Mm-hmm. I know what. If things don't work out fine, don't you worry. Can I go to the bathroom? Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm your host, Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm rating and reviewing every single audiovisual property in which Dennis Quaid has ever appeared, including the ones that literally didn't exist until I paid NBC way too much money to make me a print. That's right, here we are at the extremely elusive, extremely expensive season four, episode four of Beretta, The Sky is Falling. Aiding and abetting me in this egregious misuse of funds is television curator at the Paley Center for Media, David Bushman. And he is joining me today to talk about the episode. Hello, David. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. Little uh, light in the wallet, but I'm all right. Um, <laughs> so this was really... Uh, were you surprised at how difficult it was for us jointly to scare up this Beretta episode? Well, not only was I surprised that we couldn't find it illegally even on some uh, collector's site or something to that effect, but once we knew that we were going to have to pay for the um, transfer, I, I found it stunning how much we, uh, I should say we, it was you who um, had to dig into your pocket for this. It, it is, it was insane. Yeah, insane. It, uh, yeah, $3,400. Um, I am pleased that an angel investor got us most of the way with uh, with that outlay, but I really found it quite, quite shocking, first of all, that it, this episode does contain a number of name actors, as well as a bunch of Hey, It's That Guys that you've seen around a bunch. So it did seem like there would have been demand for it and someone would have taped it off of tv land or something i i don't know uh i guess it fell to me to start a dennis quaid podcast and create the demand every other episode of season four i feel like was out there and not this one uh i and i i just don't know why that is would you say in in your sort of work travels that Beretta has fallen out of favor or fashion as a vintage show, or it's just not something people talk about? Well, you've got the, you know, of course the whole Robert Blake issue, which can't be overlooked, but no. uh, I would say that Beretta is not a show that is particularly fondly remembered, even though it did involve the participation of two um, showrunners or uh, writer-producers who are considered somewhat iconic or legendary in TV history, being Stephen Cannell and Roy Huggins. Right. But yes, yeah, I mean, weirdly um, unremembered. My mother actually apparently was a pretty big fan of this show because some of his uh, recurring catchphrases were things that she said to us all the time when we were kids, um, dating myself, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, I don't think I'd ever seen a frame of Beretta before I watched this. I knew the general outlines of it, but I'd never watched it before. Had you? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I 
gave it a shot back in the day, and I'm dating myself too, but it was never something that I found particularly compelling. I, I In some ways, it's sort of representative of this whole 70s genre of the private eye if you notice like kojak did the same thing you notice that i mean it, it had this famous label of gritty and if you i think they deliberately dirtied up the walls and all the police <laughs> yeah. precincts and the, yeah. uh, just to sort of give it that but i mean it's so despite that cosmetic thing it's such an inauthentic show in every way and plus you know if let's face it if robert blake is your moral compass i think you're in a lot of trouble so um yeah yeah um, I had never seen a frame. Like I said, this was fine. I mean, given how much I paid that I'm sort of like <laughs> thinking of it as a per minute <laughs> prospect, <laughs> it's absolutely never going to be worth it unless it comes to the house and presses my pants, which yeah. it did one of those things. Um, at, there, we got a lot of, um, qualifiers before the print was made that was like we can't guarantee that it won't sometimes be muddy and we don't know what's going to happen with the sound physically the print that i received was fine uh the show itself is like huh so that's what that is and then you don't have to watch it again because it's extremely of its time not just in the set design, things that everyone's wearing, just the, you know, giant polyester bell bottoms on Dennis Quaid et al. Uh, but it's also 51 minutes of screen time that you really feel that now that most procedurals are 41 minutes, maybe 43 minutes. There's just a lot of dead time in there uh but this was okay i would say overall i don't need to watch it again for free or otherwise you <laughs> i definitely have no plans to watch it again or any other episode of beretta for that matter um it, it was it dragged mm. um yeah you know i mean i'm sure you know this is an old story but you know tv back in the 70s when you had the three networks and everyone who wanted to watch tv was was watching them there was just real no no real incentive to be um good you yeah. know because because we had no choice yeah. so and i think that this is a perfectly exemplary of that whole um aesthetic yeah i would say so too um i bring this up frequently on various uh podcasts and in uh the class that i taught last semester at tish which was tv survey and we're trying to give the students an um, overview of how various genres uh, evolved. So in the beginning, you're showing them Dr. Kildare or uh, whatever, that it's like 52 minutes and you kind of can't believe uh, that they get this much out of a medical show in which you're never seeing any blood or actual surgery. And it's like... I'll never forget this comment that uh, Eric Deggins made to me one time that was like, look at an old episode of TV and notice how much time uh, is spent watching people walking, driving up to front doors. This is kind of like this. There's a chase sequence taking place in, I think, the same um, culvert where the car chase happened in Greece or the um, 
drag race happened in Greece, which is the same location they kind of use for everything of this sort. It goes on for a very long time, and there's this very odd average white band soundtrack cue on it, and they left in every stumble, like Robert Blake tripped over something and kind of tumbles partway down one of the walls, and they just left that in. Like, why? Oh, that's right, because they had to fill 51 minutes. You know, it's an interesting point. I, I didn't, I wasn't so attuned to that, but, you know, I'm watching this show right now, you know, like you take a show like that airs on Netflix. Those things run a good 55, 55, 60, 65 minutes also. Like, and, and they're, and I've recently been watching the show Mindhunter, which is so dialogue dense in a good way, so mm-hmm. conversation dense. So what they're doing is filling up time with, in a way that's actually um, compelling, whereas this is just so clearly filler that it's um, it's you know insane. But you know, it's also interesting that you mentioned Doctor Kildare because I would consider that period of the early '60s actually a better time for television than the '70s that we're talking about now with the late '70s and mid '70s with Beretta, just because so many. Um, the networks were feeling so much pressure from the FCC at that time because of the famous uh, vast wasteland speech. So, and then, you know, they sort of rode the back of uh, Kennedy's um, Camelot new frontier. And they, there's this whole school of programming called new frontier programming or Camelot programming that came up out of response to that. So there's actually some really good stuff coming out of that early sixties period, like naked city would be another oh, example. Sure. The def- yeah. Yeah. The, def- the defenders, but yeah, you know, the '70s is just not, just not. I don't think on that on that level. It, yeah, I'd agree. Uh, the filler is even more marked, given the subject matter of this episode. The plot summary is, um, and I'm quoting from TV.com and just about every other um, online source. "Quote: Beretta tries to save a teenage male prostitute who is being pursued by a killer after witnessing a friend's murder." End quote. Uh, this aired in uh, 1977, so you can imagine the um, euphemisms and things that are not being said about this situation. Um, some of the terminology is not how we we talk about these things anymore, um, but they are sort of pains to avert their eyes from what is uh, physically happening during these encounters between uh, Johns and underage, I can't even call them sex workers because they're underage, like they're basically being trafficked. But the way that the culture talked about this in the late 70s versus 40 years later is uh, quite a bit different. And Beretta in particular and his uh, boss, I guess, that we're about to hear from in clip two, um, for them to be offended on behalf of the victims here takes some rationalizing in terms of the the pimps and the clients. Uh, let me just play clip two and listeners can see what I mean. You know how old that kid is? Yeah, he's the right age. Yeah, the right age for uh, playing stickball or 
collecting football cards or even stealing hubcaps, but this is... The world's going crazy, man. Come on, grow up. It's a new age, Tony. What are you talking about a new day with stuff like this? Hey, I've been on this job for nine years, huh? Give me a break, will you? Well, then you ought to get out. If you stop caring about something like this and it don't do nothing to you, you ought to get out and get some other job. Hey, don't tell me I don't give a damn, huh? Why don't you go down to the bus station and spend five days a week down there? You bust a pimp in the morning and back on the street in the afternoon recruiting the runaways. They're coming in from Houston, from Atlanta, from wherever else they come in from. Don't tell me what I know. Why don't you go down to the, to the 4th Street Arcade down there and you watch the chicken hawk circling. As soon as they spot me, they cool it. And as soon as I split, they're back doing the same old stuff again. I mean, first of all, ask for a second take where you get the line right, Bob. Um, <laughs> second of all, they're just yelling past each other these talking points about basically this is when it's okay to um, sign off on the sex worker as victim is that he has to be quite young and he has to be getting preyed upon. Uh, and that's the only axis along which any queer sensibility is allowed is if it's involuntary. So late seventies, that's where you're at. Yeah. They don't really talk on Beretta. They just kind of shout. <laughs> it's like very high decibel. I call it the, the uh, Sidney Lamette, Prince of the City uh, syndrome. Oh my God, like, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, but I agree with everything. I think the, the your point about it just being, <laughs> I think they had bullet points, bullet talking points that they had to then go back and reformat the, the dialogue to cover, make sure they covered all. Mm -hmm. There is also... Um, uh, the kid in question is named Tommy. He's played by Barry Miller, who most people will remember either from uh, Peggy Sue Got Married or from The Kid Who Falls Off the Verrazano in Saturday Night Fever or Jumps. Spoiler. Uh, he, Barry Miller is a good actor, but this is all the acting um and he's not even the worst there's a scene in which he's on the this character is on the run because um this serial killer john killed gave him and his friend acid and then killed the friend beretta goes to visit the friend's mom who cast the friend out because he was possessed by the devil meaning gay uh and this woman's I don't even know. It's like um, Hepburn tent revival uh, delivery of her lines while she's doing that like law and order witness busy work of hanging things on a clothesline. It's extremely over the top, but uh, the material is not really um, helping anyone out. Certainly Barry Miller is uh, not saving any acting for anyone else uh the scene in which beretta is trying to lure him out of a sewer drain um to basically go into like beretta witness protection uh, even when he's not visible you can hear barry miller like whimpering at the end of the storm drain it i mean i think i think they're trying to go for a sympathetic portrayal and they just miss it because it's so over the top and i assume that's why uh nobody had time to direct dennis quaid as to which accent he's going for i believe he was told to try for generic tough guy 
but he's still so Texan that he ends up somewhere in uh, eastern Missouri via Brooklyn. Here's clip three. Come on, Tommy, you think I'd set you up for something like that? You said you knew who he was. You said you knew him. I never saw the guy before. I want to get out of here. you? want to get out of here. Hey, hey, you can go any place you want to go. Huh? You know, that's not such a bad idea, in fact. <laughs> you know? Look, I'll tell you what. I want to give you some money. I want you to go down south until this whole thing blows over. Florida, huh? I got some friends down there that take really good care of you. I mean, that clip pretty much speaks uh, as much as anything could to the experience of watching this episode. Barry Mil Miller is giving himself a hernia, and Dennis Quaid is also there. It was a difficult watch and not because the subject matter was um, being interacted with in any compelling or bracing way. Yeah, that might be the, uh, that might win the award for the worst scene uh, in a among a series of really bad overacted scenes. But I was wondering when you'd get to Dennis Quaid. I, I think um, it's interesting that he uh, is, you know, I, I, I'm not as familiar with his career as, as you are, and we tend to think of him now as something of a more heroic character, but it, it's kind of a really ugly role to play, and um, so I sort of give him credit for that anyway, so I, I give him some points for that. It's not a, it's not a character you're going to in any way feel any uh, empathy for or um, attraction to. Yeah, that's true. Um, he does play it with this glibness uh there's a clip coming up in which he's talking to this client and he's like uh you know the client's like oh well i didn't mean to kill this jeff beaumont kid it was an accident and uh and uh dennis quaid is like well that's what you said about the guy in chicago so th this is actually extremely dark what's happening here but um Quaid is playing it with this um, fairly light, like, I, I'm not sure it doesn't fit. It's just an interesting choice. It's also, you know, episodic television in the late 70s, and I'm not, I'm not sure how much time episode directors were necessarily spending on uh, motivations and making sure the day players were coming from the right emotional place. Dennis Quaid is absolutely, you know, this is a self-serving character and that's how he's playing it. He doesn't want to get in trouble. He wants the source of income to continue. He doesn't really care about Tommy and he's playing it quite straightforwardly because this character is driving a Porsche. The first time we yeah. see him, he's in a blue Porsche and he's fine he just wants yeah. this situation resolved um although sarah you know what i thought was kind of interesting about it and if this was like made in the 2000s on hbo or something they might have done more with this there are a couple of times where you wonder and then you sort of come to your senses and go oh no this is 70s tv there are a couple of times where you wonder if he's going to um have a have a epiphany um he's one time he says to the killer you know i don't do stuff like that and um he 
does seem, um, you know, kind of upset about the, the first killing. And I really hoped, beyond hope, as it turns out, that <laughs> in the end he was gonna he was gonna turn during that chase. He was gonna like help the kid help help the kid instead of try to um, ca- capture him. And I thought that would have been a really interesting little twist, but it just wasn't. You know, there's no there's no nuance in seventies yeah, network television. No. I I wish they'd gone in a different direction, and I think you're right that the contemporary viewer is attuned to uh, a different, less expected choice being made at that point in the script, and then it's like, oh no no no, this is the this is the only choice at this time in TV narrative history. Look, this is the last season of Beretta. You can kind of, once you know that, you can see it. Uh, I, despite the, um, actually, you know what? I'm going to give it a 3.4 because that's how many thousand dollars it cost. And um, that's how many minutes of it I was actually enjoying myself. So 3.4. Yeah, a 3.4 overall. Uh, How are you scoring this? Um, piece of I, TV history. It pains me considering how much we, how much time, money, and effort we put into this. But I think you're being generous. Oh, I am. I but mean, you yeah, know, yeah. I'm doing a bit. I mean, I, I, I've given it a one, Sarah. Wow, one. that seems high based on <laughs> your comments. All right, well, you know that'll that'll average down to a <laughs> to a two and two ish, and that. That seems right. Um, let us move on then to the Quaidosity. Uh, I pulled a clip from the scene uh, that we were talking about before where um, the, uh, the killer, Bill, and uh, Dennis Quaid have this uh, like dead drop meat in Bill's law firm's bathroom, sure, uh, and talk about what they're going to do. Uh, this is probably the like most sustained that the character is in terms of like gauging the quaidosity. So here's clip four. Well, I've got three meetings stacked up. What's this all about? There's a cop nosing around looking for Tommy. Tommy? The one you didn't kill? It was an accident. Yeah, sure. That's what you told me about that kid in Chicago, too. Well, forget about that. The only difference is that kid ended up crippled. That Jeff is dead. Look, it uh, just happened. I don't know how. Uh-huh. I read the papers, too, you know. You tied that kid up like a side of beef. Look, I don't remember that. I don't remember any of that. Uh, I dropped some acid. I must have gone blind. Oh, look, whatever you did, it's done. I mean, the kid's dead. Now, the cops are looking for Tommy. Now, when, if they find him, and when they do, they're going to squeeze him, and he's going to point the finger right at me. I'm the one who knows. Well, what are you going to do about it? No, baby, look, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> no, baby, look, what are you going to do... I mean, it it starts out good, and then in the second half of that, you can kind of feel Quaid uh, making more of an effort to remember all of his lines in an order, and he kind of loses control of the the nuance of the character, and his eyes are kind of shifting all around. Would you agree, or did you think he was good there? Uh, I do not think he was good there. I think you're you're right on target. Mm. 
Yeah, this is. I think a, he does. I, I think he does have. You know, you do see. I think a little bit of his charisma, though, seeping through. Uh, I think. Or am I crazy? No, no, that, you do. It, it's more of the. It's more of the. Um, like uh, Quaid in sort of a later action movie where he's like desperate and up against it and trying to figure out a solution. It's more of that Quaid than the effortlessly charismatic Quaid. It's also a little disconcerting because to this point in my uh, rewatchings, he's been playing fifties. Uh, he's been playing fifties characters. So the styling here that this is contemporary styling is um, like disconcerting because he has the feathered hair and the gold necklace and the silk shirt buttoned unbuttoned to the navel leather um, jacket yeah the a yeah. bunch of leather jackets which um are all pretty pretty foxy i'd wear any <laughs> of those um yeah brown polyester bell bottoms etc yeah. so that's a little disconcerting um and he is shot close enough in this that you can really see like he i mean he's very young and poorless um but he's really struggling to not be audibly Texan and failing is is one problem that he's having. And the other problem is that he has, I think, a combined three and a half minutes to make this character interesting and not a conduit of felonious fuckery. And he, he's just not able to do it quite but he is fairly quady. This is just really an ugly part that uh, is a little surprising to find this early in his CV when things were really about to take off for him in a year or two. Um, so I'm going to give this a three in terms of quadosity. Uh, you know, I am not 100% sure what you mean by quadosity, so... I'm going to say, though, that I think that yeah, I'm not a huge Dennis Quaid fan. He, too, he's got that twangy thing going on, like with, uh, say, Kurt Russell and Patrick Swayze. Uh -huh. But um, I think what his charm is, is that he has a certain authenticity to him or naturalness that... When, I think he's at his best when he doesn't seem like he's acting. Yeah. And, that, and this is like the complete opposite of that. This yeah. is like the worst situation for him to be in. So uh, if, if quadosity is a measure of what makes him good, then I think this has got to be like really low on the scale. And I'd give it an, another, I mean, you know, maybe a two because I think some of the charisma does seep through. But I, I think he just, in order to be great, he needs to be put in a situation where he kind of looks like he's not acting, you know, like he's just being that Dennis is, Quaid. That is part of the um, Quader Vescent um, scale, I would say, is not just how good is he, um, but how how typical is he? Like, how much does this let him be what we think of when we think of Dennis Quaid? Um, and sometimes he's just not cast correctly that's something that we'll probably get into more in when we get into like season god i don't even know six um far from heaven there's going to be i think a spirited debate about whether you know is he good sure should he have been cast in this part maybe not so yeah i mean 
this is not a typical Dennis Quaid role, and he's not the sort of lead guest star, so it's not all that Quaidy. So do what you got to do. You giving it a one or two? I'll give it a two. I I think it's, uh, you know, you know the old Marshall McLuhan thing about TV being a cool medium and that people like John Kennedy who are, have this cool persona about them are much better Mm -hmm. um, for the medium than hot people like Richard Nixon who's sweating. I think Quaid is a very, has a very cool persona. And I think that, you know, if you play to that, that he could be a really good TV, Uh, you know, he could be great on TV. He, He has that sort of coolness about him, and uh, I think he can be, be very low-key about it in sort of a James Garner-ish way. So, oh, yeah. But, but you, you don't see any of that whatsoever uh, in, this, in this episode. So, you know, I'm, I'll give it a two. Yeah, I, I really think that uh, this is a part that, like, he's adequate, but this could have been anyone, and it yeah. probably should have been someone else. <laughs> yeah. All right, um... Anything else on this um, platinum-plated, diamond-encrusted <laughs> turd that we've just I contemplated? Mean, I, I feel bad. I mean, I wish that it had been better, considering all the trouble and expense we went to. I, I wish that it had been better. But it certainly is evocative of its time. Um, the other thing I wanted to say to you was that I please invite me back for Legion, because believe it or not, that's my favorite Dennis Quaid movie ever. I think I can do that. Uh, okay. Thank you so much for your help today and in uh, making sure that this uh, Beretta episode did not interrupt the the um, orderly procedure uh, uh, that I have laid out for this podcast. Well, and, you know, thanks to you, it's now preserved for history and available for viewing here at the Pella Center, and that's thanks to you, sir. <laughs> um, I'll be right over to bolt the plaque with my name on it into the wall. Um, I think I might actually just spell my name wrong because I'm not totally sure I want credit for uh, taking up space at the Paley Center. Uh, all right, we will uh, talk to you in the Legion episode, David. Thanks again for coming Thank on the you, podcast. Thank you, Thanks. On episode five of Quaid in Full, the guy who played Dorothy's son on the Golden Girls aspires to track and field stardom and deals with the death of a friend in Vietnam. Dennis Quaid is also present. That's our winning season. In the meantime, check out the show notes for this winning season and follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod to let me know how you'd rate the show or which 70s TV stars wore a puka shell necklace better than Dennis Quaid. And if you're wondering when your favorite Quaid joint is getting covered, or you'd like to advertise on a specific film or TV show's episode, my DMs are open. Quaid in Full is written, edited, and hosted by me, Sarah D. Bunting. Do you not subscribe yet? No, baby. Look, what are you going to do about that? Here's what. Go wherever you get your podcasts and sign up and rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. adult, aren't you?